Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through His Word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com. Page one, we get to the book of Genesis. And in the book of Genesis, it starts with humanity and God living together in unity and humanity living under God's blessing. But the narrative quickly changes as sin enters the world and humanity is pushed into exile outside of the Garden of Eden as they are thrown out because of their submission to sin. This is the story of decreation. So you have creation where God establishes the world under blessing and unity, and it starts off in a beautiful garden of flourishing. That story quickly changes as man submits to evil and sin is brought in the world and decreation starts to take place, where the created order that God ordained starts to break down. Adam and Eve, who were created in the image and likeness of God, they decide to go and life alone. Rather than living in God's kingdom and God's beautiful garden, they preferred to create their own kingdom in a place where they could be in charge of themselves. The serpent, who represents evil, he offers them the opportunity, get this, to be like God. But here's the tragedy of that moment. The tragedy is that they were already like God, made in his image and likeness. But in choosing to be God's rival rather than God's friend, they get thrown out of the Garden of Egypt, uh, of Eden. This is fascinating to me. It was brought to my attention fairly recently that humanity being thrown outside of the Garden of Eden was not necessarily only a punishment. Get this, God is holy and God is just, meaning that God cannot be in the presence of sin because his holiness and his righteousness would destroy sin because of just how perfect and holy he is. When humanity brings sin upon himself, what he does is he becomes sin, and so God being in the presence of sinful humanity would have caused humanity to, humanity to be destroyed. And so when God removes humanity outside of his presence and kicks humanity outside of the garden, it's actually the first act of grace, mercy, and kindness shown upon humanity as God exiles us from his presence. And humanity finds itself lost in a wasteland trying to make and establish his own kingdom. Martin Luther famously defined sin as a life turning in on itself bringing about its own destruction. So rather than centering their lives around God, what we do as human beings is we want everything else to revolve around us. And we see this taking place in our world today, where humanity is selfish at its core and wants everything to revolve around us and the individual. This was the choice of Adam and Eve and the, the effect of their decision where they chose independence over dependence and their will over God's will had ramifications for all of the created order. Sin, destruction, decay, and death were brought into this world and everything that God created started to unravel at decreation. In the wasteland outside of Eden, Cain kills his brother Abel and the created order that God had declared was good starts to spiral into chaos. And the absolute low point of the decreation story comes in Genesis chapter six, where it states that the earth was filled with violence and that the heart of God was deeply troubled. 
In Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve had eaten of this forbidden fruit from the tree, God says to the serpent, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat the dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This reference where God is referring to the offspring of Eve crushing the head of the serpent and destroying evil points forward to the conquest that takes place between Jesus and the serpent or between Jesus and evil and destruction and ultimately points to the victory that we celebrate today on Easter Sunday at the cross. John, 1 John chapter 3 highlights, it says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work to destroy evil. God's plan from the very beginning was for Adam and Eve to multiply, to bear fruit, expanding the Garden of Eden until it filled the entire earth and God's blessing and glory was found over our entire planet. That was the mandate, to carry the presence of God to the four corners of the earth, expanding the garden, multiplying and producing fruit. However, this plan gets completely derailed as Adam and Eve submit to sin and the serpent and the evil. The reversal of this fall is now needed. Creation, God's good order. Sin enters the world, decreation, as the whole order of God is disrupted what we need now is everything to be made new, everything to be reestablished back to God's original plan in a beautiful garden. A reversal of the fall is needed. In the message of Revelation 21, 22, at the end of the Bible, the message comes through loud and clear. We read this, John writes, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The old heaven and the old earth had disappeared. The sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now amongst his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. God is in the business of making everything new. In John's gospel, if we fast forward two thirds of the way through our Bible and we get to the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these are biographies, if you will, of Jesus's life, just simple accounts and testimonies of who Jesus is. And in John's gospel, it begins with three now very familiar words. John starts with, in the beginning, in the beginning. Now, this could be potentially pretty confusing. You might be thinking, well, we're two-thirds of the way through the story, and now this author shows up, and he's going to tell us the story about Jesus, and he starts with, in the beginning. He takes us all the way back to the beginning of the story. Why? John is telling us that in Jesus, a new creation is about to be established. All things are about to be made new. Creation, decreation, a new creation, recreation. Genesis, as the Bible opens, is a story of creation. John, the author here of this gospel, is telling us the story of recreation. 
Each of the gospel's friends actually starts out in the same familiar theme with all things being made new. And I'd like to highlight some of these this morning because this week as I was preparing for Easter and reading and researching, my mind was just being blown with the reality of what was actually taking place. And I actually said to Caitlin, I was like, who writes this stuff? The answer is God. But... uh, Matthew's gospel opens with these familiar words. Matthew chapter one, verse one. First page of your New Testaments. An account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ or an account of the creation of Jesus or the birth of Jesus. These three words and the opening, or these words parallel with the opening page of our Bible where it says in Genesis chapter two, this is the account of the heavens and the earth as they were created. This is the account of Jesus as he was created. This is the account of heaven and earth as it is created. If Genesis 1 and 2 point to the story of creation, then Matthew is suggesting that his book and the story of Jesus is about a new creation that is about to take place in and through the person of Jesus Christ. A whole new created order is about to be established as Jesus arrives on the scene. Now, Names matter. Names really matter. In the ancient world, the person's name was intimately connected with his or her identity. Names were chosen with real care. And this is why when the angel shows up to Jesus' mother Mary, she does not show up and say, you're going to have a son and you may name him whatever you want. No, she says, you're going to have a son and you shall call him Jesus. You know, we did this with our boys. Uh, Caitlin and I have two boys. Our oldest, his name is Judah Zion, and our youngest child, his name is Caleb Reed. And uh, we've even seen, we prayed about their names before they were born and, and asked God to reveal just how we could prophetically speak over their lives through their names. Judah Zion means uh, to praise, and Zion, well, Judah means to praise, and Zion means the highest point. So our prayer over Judah was that he would praise Jesus all through his life, and every time we call his name, Judah, come here, we're actually speaking prophetically over him, you're gonna praise Jesus all the days of your life. Caleb Reed means wholehearted, and if you've met my Caleb, that's one way to describe a wholehearted, passionate child with lots of energy, and he keeps us on on our toes, wholehearted. Uh, Reed is an open space, and we just pray over him that, that he would wholeheartedly chase after the open spaces that God creates for him. So why Jesus? Why did the angel say, name your child Jesus? Well, the Aramaic name for Jesus is Yeshua, which simply means Yahweh saves. Or more specifically, it means to be led into a wide open space. And so within Jesus' very name, we get the sense of his mission. This is God in human flesh leading people away from slavery into the wide open space of freedom that is found in salvation. And so it was Joshua in the Old Testament, if you know the story, Joshua leads the Israelite nation into the promised land. And now Jesus, a second Joshua, has arrived on the scene to lead people into the ultimate promised land, which is not a distant off place on a cloud, but a new heaven and a new earth as he makes all things new. And he will restore all things with how, to how they were meant to be, which is me and you walking in delight in a garden with God in complete unity. The garden is symbolic of flourishing and life and wholeness. 
the, the flourishing that was associated with Eden will no longer be a story defined to our past, but it will also point to a vision of our future where we're united with God again in a garden of delight, in a place of beauty. And so we get Jesus who arrives on the scene. And we kind of fast forward a little bit and we get to Jesus' baptism in Luke chapter three. And it's another account or important moment in our story that we need to give attention to if we wanna understand the theme of recreation of all things being made new. When Jesus was baptized, he came out the water and he was praying and it says that the heavens opened and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. Why a dove? This is the creator of the universe. He could have chosen like, a, like an awesome eagle or like a, some kind of really cool bird of prey that like looks majestic and awesome like America did when it chose, you know, your bird, the eagle. You know, it didn't choose a, 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 a pigeon, we, you know. Why a dove? Why not something beautiful like a flamingo or something catching to the eye? The significance of the dove is clear when we consider the first couple pages of the book of Genesis. Genesis paints this picture when God creates the world, get this, of the Holy Spirit hovering over the waters in the imagery of a dove. In other words, the same Holy Spirit that hovers over the waters at creation, at the beginning of time, is now hovering over Jesus as he arrives on the scene to establish a new creation. This is all a parallel and a fulfillment of everything that went wrong. See, Jesus arrives on the scene. The Spirit of God comes, hovers over him like a dove, saying to us, hey, this is the beginning of of the end. This is the beginning of a whole new creation where all of sin and shame and darkness and pain will be washed away and we will enter back into a garden of delight. Jesus arrives so that he can make you and me completely new. Tony Madeira, he says, Genesis ends with Joseph's death. Deuteronomy ends with Moses' death. Joshua ends with Joshua's death. The gospels end with Jesus' resurrection and that changes everything. And so you fast forward a little bit further in the story and we arrive at the cross. We celebrated and acknowledged this moment on Friday. But what actually happened at the cross? Well, at the cross, we get the start of this recreation story. A beautiful exchange takes place at the cross. Jesus takes what is rightfully ours, our punishment and judgment, so that we can take what is rightfully his, his righteousness and his life. A substitution takes place. Jesus sees us playing the game, and he's like, they cannot make it on their own. So he steps into the game, puts us on the bench. We receive the victory that he wins, and he takes on the pain and punishment that we so deserve. And he reverses the disorder in order so that, we can, so that he can establish right order, Jesus comes and reverses that which was lost so that everything can be established anew again. You see, the cross has more than just dealt with our sin and our guilt. The cross doesn't only just pay the price for our sin and our shame. The cross has equally overcome the powers and principalities of evil and darkness and oppression in this world. So the serpent in Genesis 3 has been defeated so that you and me can now live the lives that we were created for. A life of flourishing and wholeness and relationship and intimacy with God in a garden of delight. The chaos and the disorder of the 
decreation or the fall that takes place in Genesis where sin enters the world has now not only been dealt with, it has also been reversed at the cross to enable right order to be restored. And so it's really important to recognize that the judgment that takes place at the cross is both an end and a beginning. See, Jesus bore God's judgment, and in doing so, old humanity was put to death. An end took place so that a new humanity may be birthed, a new beginning. Paul emphasizes in 2 Corinthians, he says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. See, the new has come. Friends, this has to be the best news in the whole world. You know, we could get up here and give a nice um, Easter chat around some like really nice, fun ideas, uh, but this is the best news that there is in the world. The old has gone. Sin and shame and guilt has not only been paid for, but has completely been reversed so that we can be made new and live in a garden of delights. In the death of Jesus, sinful humanity has completely been born again. And we have this opportunity to be made completely new. See, in the death of Jesus, sinful humanity is not simply just covered. It's not like God is distracted from our sinfulness or like Jesus steps in the way and like kind of distracts him by the cross so that, and we still live with sin and shame, but yet it's like kind of covered by Jesus. It's not only covered, it's been completely destroyed and put to death. All of our sin, all of our shame, all of our guilt, everything that is wrong with this world has been dealt with and put away as an end has come and a new humanity is now born. At the cross, we see God in agony, giving birth to a new creation. Julian of Norwich, a, a mystic from the Middle Ages, he described the cross as the labor pains of a new humanity. Isn't that beautiful? The historian uh, Josephus, famous historian, he says that the outer veil of the temple veil would have, been, would have had needlework on it uh, depicting a starry sky. If you are familiar with this veil, in the center of Jerusalem, there was a temple. And at, in, within this temple was a place called the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies dwelt the presence of God, symbolizing and telling us that the presence of God could not break out into all the earth because man is sinful and the presence of God would destroy mankind. Jesus died on the cross, the, the temple curtain was torn in two. The separation between the presence of God and rest of humanity was torn in two so that the presence of God could break out across the world and be available to all of us. But get this, the needlework on the outside of that veil was a starry sky. When that curtain was torn in two, it symbolizes to us that the old cosmos has been completely destroyed and a new era and a new day can be born. Humanity leaves Eden through the doorway of death. And every attempt for us to enter back into the garden of Eden has failed. Every attempt. The doorway has remained shut. If Eden symbolizes life and wholeness and vitality and fullness and excitement and joy, every attempt for us today, even in the modern world, has failed if we want to experience life and fullness and wholeness and joy. We try and get back into the proverbial garden of Eden and the promised good life by what? Accumulating money or stuff. 
We try and get back into wholeness and life and vitality and joy through relationships or sex or identities, own ideas, political values. We try and create a proverbial garden of fullness and delight by constructing our own lives to look like Instagram reels. And every attempt to satisfy the need of intimacy in a garden of delight has fallen short and failed. The cross, however, proclaims the glorious truth that the return to the life that Eden promises us is only through a doorway of death. We exited through a doorway of death. The only way to get back in is through a doorway of death, but this time it's through the death of a Messiah on a cross. You see, friends, Jesus is the way. He is the way to the proverbial good life. He is the truth. He is everything that our hearts so desire. And the only way to have access to the life that he promises is to enter through the doorway of death, but not our death, his death on the cross. Because no one gets to walk and talk and live life in intimacy with God the Father in a garden of delight except through accepting Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. This is the beautiful good news of the cross and the recreation story that we celebrated on Friday. But today is Easter Sunday, and today we celebrate a risen Lord and Savior. Yes, Jesus dies on the cross, but we don't end the story, therefore he has risen. In John chapter 20, we read this moving story where Mary encounters the risen Jesus, where? In a garden. John 20, verse 11, Mary was standing outside the tomb crying. Jesus has gone to the cross. He has suffered and he has died and he's been placed in a tomb. And Mary goes to visit the broken, dead body of Jesus at a tomb. And she's crying. And as she wept, she stood and looked in. Jesus' body is nowhere to be found. And she saw two white-robed angels, one sitting at the head and the other at the foot of the place where the body of Jesus had been lying. But he's not there. There's just two angels. This is where my mind started getting a, going, doing a bit of a short circuit. Genesis 3 states that after the Lord God had made garments of skin for Adam and Eve, he banishes them from the Garden of Eden. Okay, so they sin and they're kicked out of the garden. Genesis 3:24, after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim or angels and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way back to the tree of life. Interestingly here, right, you following, is everyone still with me? Am I just on my own thing here? Okay, you with me. Interestingly, in both accounts, you get John's gospel and Genesis. In both accounts, man gets kicked out of the garden here in Genesis, and two angels stand at the entrance of Eden, keeping us out. In John's gospel account, we have two angels welcoming Mary in to a whole new world where everything is made new through the resurrection body of Christ. In Genesis, we have two angels guarding the way back into a garden of delight where there is a tree of life. In John's gospel, as at the empty tomb of Jesus Christ, we have two angels welcoming Mary in. And you know what they say to her? Come and see, come and see. Two angels keeping us out at the story of decreation and then two angels welcoming us back in at the story of recreation. All things, friends, are being made new 
Now we know, get this, from John 20, that Jesus in his resurrected body, he could actually walk through walls. There's the scene where the disciples are gathered, the doors are locked, and the resurrected body of Jesus arrives on the scene, and he says a week later, the disciples are in the house again, Thomas was with them, the doors were locked, and Jesus came and stood amongst them and said, peace be with you, which is quite an odd statement, because if someone just arrives in the room when the doors are locked, and they've walked through the wall, and now they tell you, peace be with you, uh, anyway, the humor of Christ, but Jesus stands there. Very clearly, he can walk through walls or closed or locked doors. So get this, the stone being rolled away from the tomb was not to let Jesus out. He could have walked through that tomb. He could have, he's the resurrected Lord and Savior. The stone being rolled away from the tomb was just to welcome us back in. It's the great reversal, friends, which makes the next moment even more impactful. Get this, in John 20, Mary Magdalene turned around She's at the tomb, and she saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know it was Jesus, supposing him to be what? A gardener, bringing us back to the garden in Eden of wholeness and fullness and flourishing and life. G.K. Testerton, he says that the third, on the third day, the friends of Christ coming at daybreak to the place found the grave empty and the stone rolled away. In varying ways, they realized the new wonder. The world had died in the night. What they were looking at was the first day of a new creation with a new heaven and a new earth. And in the semblance of a gardener, God walked again in the garden, not in the cool of the evening, but in the dawn. All things are being made new. And so the trauma that is experienced in Genesis chapter 3 is now replaced with celebration at the resurrection of Jesus. When Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, when they realized that Jesus was alive, what do they do? They, they depart quickly from the tomb. Yes, they're filled with fear because it's a crazy moment, but with also great joy, and they run to tell the other disciples the news of the gospel. Friends, these two women, they were the first witnesses of the resurrection, running with the message that would change the whole world. And the message is that Jesus is alive and a new age has dawned. We do not have to live according to an old way of rules and regulation and religion and guilt and shame and disappointment, but we can live in the freedom and life and grace and mercy and love of a father who is pursued us, lavished us with his love and grace, desires intimacy with us, and welcomes us into a garden of delight, a place of intimacy and union and connection and love and fullness and joy with him. Amen? All things have been made new. Thank you. <laughs> Genesis 3 and Luke 24, you get two meals that take place. In Luke's account of the resurrection of Jesus, we see two of the disciples discussing the events. So Jesus has died, he's gone into the tomb. These two disciples, they don't know that Jesus has risen yet. And they're disappointed and they're having a discussion about the events that have taken place. Probably saying things like, can you believe it? We thought he was the Messiah, but now he's dead. And they're on their way to a place called Emmaus. The risen Lord Jesus joins them in their conversation. Jesus is quite a mysterious dude. I mean, imagine you're just walking on the road and then next thing like someone just joins in with you. But he starts to have a conversation with them and they do not recognize his identity. They don't know it's him. The eyes of their heart are closed. 
And Jesus goes on to explain the events and reminds them of what the prophets had said all throughout the Old Testament about this coming Messiah. Jesus basically gives them the best apologetics preach or lecture that has ever taken place. And he tells them all about this coming Messiah and still they remain clueless to who he is. He gives them all the clever ideas, all the academic, he goes through the entire Old Testament showing them how it all points to him and still they don't recognize it being him. The breakthrough comes at a table. The breakthrough comes at dinner. In Luke 24, we read, and it was as he reclined at the table with them that he took bread, blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. Then the eyes, then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. They sat down and had a meal with Jesus and the eyes of their heart were opened and they recognized him. Do you see that our God is, is a God of intimacy and relationship and connection and life. And he wants to invite us to join him at the table. So what caused their eyes to open? Well, we can't 100% know for sure. But what we do see is over a post-resurrection meal, the lights in their heart turned on, the resurrected Jesus was at a table with them, and everything changed, and the new creation had begun as all things for them started to become new. Now, the meal in Luke 24 recalls to mind another meal that took place, this time a meal at the beginning of creation. If this is the first meal of the new creation... It points back to a fateful meal that took place in Genesis, which caused the unraveling of the created order in Genesis chapter 3. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delight and to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. So they have a meal. At that meal, the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. They knew that sin had entered the world. In Genesis 3, food was taken, eaten, and given, and the eyes of both of them were opened. Luke would have undoubtedly had this meal in mind when he wrote his gospel. And he gives an account of a post-resurrection meal that replaces the meal in Eden. At both meals, the eyes of their hearts were opened. One meal brought about death, and separation from God, and another meal brings about the revelation of who Jesus is, and they see him clearly. All things are being restored and made new. Everything that went wrong, Jesus is making right. Everything, a meal that caused death and destruction, is being reversed, and a new meal, a new table is set that brings about fullness in life. Friends, Jesus invites us to sit with him at the table so that the eyes of our hearts might be open, so that we can see him which is why today we have beautiful flowers symbolizing a new life and entering back into a garden of delight in which all of us have access to. And then we have a beautiful table with lovely treats that I cannot wait to tuck into because everybody is invited to have a seat at the table. And we do this together in community because the body of Christ has been born so that together we can sit down at a table and we can feast so that the eyes of our hearts may be opened and we may see him. It's also why we have groups that meet around our city called open tables because within the body of Christ, there is an open table. There is a seat for everybody to come in and see Jesus and it happens in community. And so I wanna say to you, if you're here today and you haven't plugged into the body of Christ, meaning you haven't 
built relationships or made friends or participated in weekly events that happen or, or gatherings that take place around our city. Come, you're welcome. Have a seat at the table. There are no rules or regulations or uh, prescribed things that you need to submit to. Just come. Jesus reveals himself to us in community when we sit down and open ourselves up to him. And so today we celebrate the victory of Jesus and the new life that he offers and we gather around a table anticipating a garden of delight. And the best part is that there is a seat for everyone. There's a seat for you, there's a seat for me, there's a seat for your family member or your friend who maybe God's just highlighting to you right now that you're like, man, they need to hear the good news of Jesus. Bring, come, join in the feast of the body of Christ. Friends, Jesus has done everything necessary to reverse the tragic effects of the meal that took place in Genesis 3 that led to Adam and Eve departing Eden. And now the doorway to Eden is back open again. The resurrection story of Christ is the hinge point on the whole story of God where everything changes and creation is made new. In the book, Surprised by Hope, Tom Wright, he states this. He says, the resurrection of Jesus offers itself not as a very odd event within the world as it is, but as the utterly characteristic, prototypical, and foundational event within the world as it has begun to be, new life. It is not an absurd event within the old world, but the symbol and starting point of a whole new world. And the implications of this changes everything for you and me. Two things in closing. Firstly, Jesus is alive, and so he can be personally known. You see, for the first disciples who encountered the risen Jesus, this meant that they didn't have to feed off past memories of him. They did not have to feed off past old accounts written in scriptures from ages ago. They could now make new memories with Jesus as they continued to walk and talk and do life with the living Savior. And so for us today, the resurrection of Jesus means that we do not have to feed off an historical Jesus, but we can know Jesus personally. See, friends, it's important to have a living relation. It's, it's, sorry, it's impossible to have a living relationship with someone who's dead. But our faith is not based on someone who is dead. Our faith, their faith is not based on a historical figure. We, we worship a man who is dead, who was dead and is alive again. We, risen a, we, we worship a risen Lord, Jesus. Secondly, the resurrection guarantees new life. Firstly, we can have an intimate relationship with Jesus where we know him personally. Secondly, resurrection guarantees life after death. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the apostle Paul writes, and if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. But in fact, Christ has been risen from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. So, you see, just as death came into the world through a man, now the resurrection of the dead has begun through another man. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. But there is an order to this resurrection. Christ was raised as the first of the harvest, then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. Jesus goes before us, friends. He goes through death to a new life, and then he invites us to follow as he makes everything new. 
Paul celebrates this in 1 Corinthians, declaring that death has been swallowed up by victory. There is no more death. We live forever and we will enter into a garden-like city in a glorified state where we can worship God and enjoy Him forever. Death itself has been defeated, leaving eternal life for everybody who follows in Jesus. And I just ask today, do you follow Jesus? Have you, have you submitted to Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Because the, the promise, the offer, the gift that is available is new life and wholeness. And you don't have to live according to your old life, but we can embrace a new life because Jesus has made everything new. But life after death is only what, like part one of the promise. It's like a bad TV advert. There's more. The promise of eternal life actually starts now. Life before death is also part of the package. See, the new creation has dawned. It started already. Jesus inaugurated it. Things have already started to become new. And we can live in light of this new world. We can live in light of that now. And so whether you've accepted Jesus or not, the invitation is come. There is a seat at the table. You can accept him. And then if you have accepted him, we can live in light of this new life on offer now. more than just the future hope, friends. It's actually a present invitation. Jesus' resurrection is more than just guarantees life after death, but as being in Christ, by doing that, we can experience life and wholeness and fullness and intimacy and delight and joy and identity and everything that Christ has to offer us in a garden now. Paul makes it clear in Romans chapter 8, the Spirit of God who raised Christ from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Christ from the dead, He will give new life to our mortal bodies by the same Spirit living in you. The fullness of the, that Jesus offers us is, is a promise. And it's more than just a promise about life after death. It's about a promise of life available for you and me now. It is a way to live life in wholeness before the grave for everybody who submits to the power in the way of Jesus by the power of His Spirit. All things being new, friends. All things, can you say all things new? All things new ultimately means freedom. The victory of Jesus on the cross and His resurrection is experienced by you and me in a place of freedom, not bondage, freedom. We are free from the power of Satan and sin and death. We are free and we are free indeed. We are free from striving. We are free from earning. We are free from achieving. We are free. Paul says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Simply for freedom. And so we have a choice. And so I want to close out our Easter Sunday moment with the story of Abraham Lincoln. There's a story of Abraham Lincoln that depicts him visiting a slave auction before he becomes president. According to the legend of the story, he stood at the back of an auction room and he noticed the atmosphere change as a number of slave girls were brought into the front of the room who were going to be auctioned. And it's pretty clear what these slave girls were going to be used for. The first slave girl comes out and was auctioned and the bids start flowing in and every bid is met with cheers and jeers from the crowd and Lincoln stands at the back repulsed by what he sees. And from the back of the room, he loudly offers his bid, silencing the crowd. His bid went well beyond what the slave girl would have been worth and well beyond what anybody else in the room would have actually been able to afford. 
and the crowd was completely stunned. What kind of man would pay that amount of money for a slave girl? It made no sense. The slave girl looked terrified and frightened at the prospect of what this new master was going to do to her. And the auctioneer closes the bids and he points the slave girl in the direction of her new master. She makes her way to the back of the room. Every eye is turned on her as they're trying to anticipate what's going to happen next. And as she approaches Lincoln, he looks her in the eyes and he simply says to her, young lady, you're free. The crowd is completely stunned, perplexed. What's going on here? She says, what does that mean? What does it mean I'm free? Does it mean that I can say whatever I want to say? Lincoln says, yes, my dear, you may say whatever you want to say. Does that mean, she asks, I can be whatever I want to be? Yes, Lincoln replies. You can be whatever you want to be. Does that mean I can go wherever I want to go? Yes, he replies. You can go wherever you want to go. The girl pauses for a moment to take it all in, and then with tears streaming down her face, she responds, then I'll go with you. See, friends, if you ask any Christian about their decision to follow Jesus, each person would have a unique story, absolutely. But behind each story would be the same response of the slave girl, which is when I realized who this man was and what he was like, his generosity, his grace, his mercy, his kindness, then following him was the easiest decision in the whole world. In other words, when we recognize Jesus for who he is, the rest takes care of itself. And so we've set a table because we want the eyes of our hearts to be open so that we can see Jesus. We could do a talk or a lecture or do some kind of thing. But what we see Jesus doing in the accounts in Scripture, sitting at a table and the eyes of our hearts being open, seeing and recognizing Him. And then allowing Him to make all things new in my heart and in my life and embracing the fullness of life that is on offer to us in a renewed life in a garden like Eden. Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through His Word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com. Thank you.